Psalm 23, and so let me read it to you. It's titled, The Good Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Let's pray. Father, my prayer in this moment is simple. I just pray that, that, that the words uttered here are your words, that there's no, there's no Brian in this. There's, there's just all Jesus. And in that prayer, I just pray that if, if there's any hearts here that are hard, that they be softened. And for all the soft hearts here, Lord, that they be filled. So I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So my hope is when this sermon ends um, that we're all going to know ourselves a little bit better, and hopefully we're going to know the Good Shepherd a lot better. And I think most of you know this about me, but uh, in a previous life, I identified as a policeman. Um, I did that for over 30 years, and in that job, I, I'm not looking for, for boo-hooing here, but I, I just want you to know I was cursed at, I was spit on. I've been shot at multiple times. I've been in more fistfights than I can count. Um, I had a partner shot. I had another partner stabbed at another incident. Now, they were superficial, but still, it's kind of shocking when your partner says, I've been hit. Um, as a narcotics detective, part of my job was dismantling drug labs, which was really fun. And for that uh, honor, I got cancer. Um, I've watched friends and family die. I've had friends betray me. I've, I've been mocked publicly. Um, I've been forgotten. But one of the scariest times of my life was an incident um, involving my son. And he's here, his name's Brett, and Brett's a Marine. Now he's out, but if you all know, once a Marine, always a Marine, right? So Brett was deployed to Afghanistan a few years ago, and I was driving home on the freeway, and I heard a news report of a Marine being killed. And uh, I was pretty sure it was Brett's unit. And I, was, I knew it was at the same forward operating base that Brett was in at the moment. I, I was pretty sure that the Marine had the same job and was in the same detachment, if you will, that Brett was. And most of the time, I'm pretty optimistic about things, but for whatever reason in that moment, um, I just had dread. And it was, it was crippling. So I, I didn't know what to do, right? I had to do something, but I didn't know what to do. It's like, do I call Linda? No, because that'll, that'll create panic in her that I don't want her to have. And so I thought, well, I'll call Brett, right? Because Brett and I were able to communicate uh, occasionally. So I called him and it went right to voicemail. Didn't ring. 
and I had the phone number of one of his buddies in the unit, so I called him right to voicemail. Didn't ring. In my mind, that was another bad sign. I later found out that when a uh, military person is killed in combat, that they will shut the entire base down electronically. There is no ability to communicate in or out until all the proper notifications have been made, and they're trying to cut down misinformation and also have respect for the deceased and the, and the, the surviving family, but I, I didn't know that. So it just kept adding to my anxiety. Um, so I started scouring the news. Now remember, I was in rush hour traffic, so I wasn't going anywhere. So don't, don't be down too much on me for scouring the news on my phone, but that's what I did. <clears throat> and then a strange thing happened. I found it. I found the Marine that was killed, and I found, I found his name. And I found it on Facebook. And, and when I found his page, what I saw was condolences from friends of his that I'd never met. And I saw a post from his mom, the sadness that, that she had, and it exposed to me the horror that, that their family was going through. But yet I, I had this really strange feeling. I felt elated. And then I felt sad. And then I felt elated again. And then I felt sort of just sick and disgusted. And the reason I felt all those things was because, well, I was thrilled that Brett was alive. And so there's that, yay. And then you remember this dead kid and his, his parents and his girlfriend and his friends. And you say, oh, no, how terrible. And, and so there's this, there's this up-down um, that I, I honestly, I, I couldn't deal with it. So I pulled over on the side of the freeway and I just sat for a few minutes and I, I just stared at my phone and I prayed for, I prayed for this kid. I prayed for his family. I prayed and thank God that my son was alive. Um, it was, it was a, a selfish moment, but it was a real moment. And so in, in that moment, I had entered the valley of death for just, just a brief, brief time. Um, but I also realized that this family that I didn't know, unlike me who had entered and come out almost immediately, they'd entered and they were going to stay in it for a while. You know, their, their journey was just beginning and that's, that was a hard pill. So Psalm 23, which is what we're going to cover today, introduces us to that valley. And there's a lot of lessons in there for us. I know it's, it's only a few verses, but it's, it's, like so much of scripture, it's deep and it's dense and it's rich. It's probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Even people that probably have never picked up a Bible know Psalm 23, right? And it's written by David, who is somebody who knows pain and anguish. He, he was the second king of Israel, if you didn't know, and we're not exactly sure when he wrote this psalm. But most scholars believe it was at the very end or the, near the end of his life. And it's important when we look at this because we know David's story. It's all laid out in First and Second Samuel. So you can imagine this guy, this David. He's, he's the king of Israel, and he has everything the world says you need. He has power. He has money. Uh, he has the best chariot. You know, uh, He's got a super sweet palace. He's got, he's got girls. He's got all the fame that our society, our culture says you should go out and get. 
But at the same time, he's near the end of his life. In his country, his kingdom are beginning to unravel. And a big part of that story, and that's, that's why I opened up with Brett, because there's no love deeper than a child's love, and there's no wound deeper than, than a, a child can create or a parent can create. And so his own son, a guy named Absalom, was trying to kill him. And I can imagine being a father and having your own son wanting you dead and trying to hunt you down and having, having to take steps to, to avoid that. And so it's in that light that he writes this psalm. But the strange thing is it's, it's not a psalm of sadness. It's, it's called um, a psalm of confidence. And that's confidence even in the valley, maybe especially in the valley because God is with us. So the funny thing about Psalm 23, though, is it's called a psalm of confidence, but that's not when we hear it. We usually hear it when our lives are a mess, right? This is the psalm for the guy who got fired from his job, and he, he, he's on his way home, and he doesn't know how to tell his wife what just happened. This is the psalm for the soldier that has PTSD, and, and he's home, and he's, he thinks he's losing his mind. It's, it's a psalm for the parent whose child has a drug problem and they, they haven't heard from them and that child hasn't been home in weeks. Um, maybe it's a psalm for somebody who has cancer or it's a psalm for somebody who's lost somebody to cancer or lost somebody another way. It's also a psalm for the couple that's been praying month after month that the pregnancy test will finally be positive but it's not. And it's a psalm for people whose marriage is falling apart and they feel they don't know what to do and they can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I know, I imagine that all of us have had those moments where we feel despair. Am I right? I mean, I can't be the only one that has that feeling like life is out of control and I've got to do something to grab it. But the good news is this psalm, while it's used in all those times, this is a song of comfort. And it's a psalm that says we're not alone. You know, although David was a shepherd, I don't know if you noticed, but we'll, we'll put it up on the screen in a little bit when Linda was reading it. David's not telling this from the shepherd's perspective. This psalm is written from the perspective of a sheep, which is kind of an interesting, you know, literary trick, if you will. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, one of the things I know about sheep is they're stupid. And, and yeah, you're right, sheep, sheep are dumb. But I also want you to know that David is taking the role of the sheep in this, and so are we. And, and keep in mind that, that David, that we are made in the image of the shepherd. So he's not calling us dumb here. You know, each of us were sons and daughters of a living God. We're Imago Dei, and because of Jesus, we're heirs to that fortune, and we get to live with him in heaven forever. But the reality is we also have tendencies, and some of those tendencies, well, we share them with the sheep. And so this psalm points us to God through the metaphor of the lowly sheep, and the first line is, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? And I think most of us, when we see that, we go right through it. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, okay, no duh, I got it. But it's bigger than that, because it's important to ask just those first two words, the the words, the Lord. Who is the Lord to you? 
right? It puts us at a crossroads where we have to make a decision. Is our Lord, is he the creator of heaven and earth? Is he the God that thought all of this up? Or is he someone or something else? Because it makes a big difference. You know, there's a lot of shepherds in the world, but Jesus tells us there's only one good shepherd, and it's him. And the Lord, this one, he's my shepherd. He's not our shepherd. He's also my shepherd. And this, when this was written, this is not how the Jewish people thought. This would have blown their minds. Jewish society was largely collective. It was, it was not about the good of the individual. It was about the good of the whole. And so they thought of God as our shepherd. They thought of him as the shepherd to our nations. Um, they never talked about God as my shepherd, but David does. And he makes it very personal here. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. He loves me. And I think that's important as an audience, that the Lord loves you. He, he certainly loves us all, but he loves you. And so as we, we probably can, can deduce here, David is certainly a famous shepherd. He's one of the most famous, but there is one more famous, right? And John 10 tells us, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is Jesus speaking. Jesus is the good shepherd. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd, doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. And see, that's why I think there's this dividing line in the Lord. It's an example of a shepherd and a stand-in, an imposter, if you will. Jesus makes it clear that he is the good shepherd. He will lay down his life for the sheep. But the imposter, sometime during the life or at your, the end of your life, the imposter is going to run away and abandon you and leave you. So make sure you're following the good shepherd. And David, as a sheep, also says something interesting. He says, I have what I need. So from a sheep, this is a, this is a bold statement right here. I mean, this sheep is perfectly satisfied with his shepherd. Totally. He's not craving anything else. He's not desiring anything else. He has what he needs. See, the job of a good shepherd is to provide his sheep with good food, clean water, safety, and shelter. And the good shepherd knows that, that good grass is hard to find. That's, that's the main staple, um, especially in an environment like Israel that is, is mostly desert and rock. The good shepherd knows that predators and disease and storms come, and often. And so the good shepherd works really hard to keep them safe. And he also knows that we share that nature with the sheep. And like the sheep, we're easily distracted. So he constantly tends to us. And it's all because our first point here is the good shepherd cares. The good shepherd loves you and he cares about you. The first thing a good shepherd does, though, is he knows, right? He knows where the best pastures are. He prepares them and he takes the sheep there. Because if left to their own, sheep will eat all the grass in the same spot, right to the dirt, and kill it. I don't know if you know this, but if you cut your grass too short, it doesn't come back. It just dies. So the shepherd constantly monitors that aspect of what his sheep are doing and leads them to fields that sustain them. And when he leads them to those fields, he lets them lie down in green pastures. Some translations say he makes me. And honestly, if you were to, to, to dig into that, it's, it's the same thing, right? When it's God talking, he lets me, he makes me. But did you know that sheep require four things before they can rest? I'll, I, I, I don't think I made this up. There's a lot of smart guys that have done this. And 
this is going to be a lot of F words for church, but he, I call these the free, the four free froms. So this isn't a freedom, this is a free from. And here's what the, here's what the shepherd must do, because sheep are timid creature, and before they can lay down, they need to be free from fear. You see, sheep are defenseless. And as long as they believe the bears and the wolves and the coyotes and the lions and all the other creatures that want to eat them are nearby, they can't lay down. Without horns or sharp teeth, they need to stay on their feet and be ready to flee at a moment's notice because running is their only defense in that. And so to lay down, for a sheep to lay down is to have total freedom from life and its fears. And to help, the shepherd sleeps with their sheep to both protect them and to give them the comfort of presence. And when the sheep can sense or see that their shepherd is near, they can rest. Psalm 4.8 tells us, I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. <clears throat> you alone, Lord. The second free from is, like us, sheep are social. There's actually a pecking order in sheepdom, and they can't lie down unless they're free from friction. So what that means is if there's any strife in the flock, they just can't relax. Every animal society has an established order of dominance, right? We would call it an alpha. And in sheep, it's usually an old dominant female. Go ladies. And this old dominant female, she shows her dominance by headbutting anyone she sees as a challenge. And the one thing that stops her, though, from bullying the other sheep is when the shepherd's present. You see, when the shepherd's near, she no longer is in charge, and she leaves the other sheep alone, content that the shepherd has it under control. I think that's an amazing picture of Jesus. When we, when we finally realize that Jesus is in charge, we no longer have to be, right? We don't have to show or prove our dominance. We don't have to have the best car or the biggest house. When we truly have Jesus as our shepherd in sight, seeing him makes the old headbutting you and all of us lay down and be content. The third thing that sheep need so that they can lay down is, is they are tormented by bugs and parasites. So they need to be free from pests and bullies. You see, they can't relax. And the shepherd handles this in two different ways. First, do you know what controls bugs? Temperature. So for the shepherd, the higher he takes the sheep, the colder the mountain is at night, the less bugs can survive in those temperatures. So the shepherd takes his sheep and he goes up and he gets away from the bugs and he tries to provide them re relief from what I'll call life's little bullies. But there's a second thing that the, that the shepherd does, which is maybe resonates more with us a little bit, and that's he covers their heads with oil. It prevents the bugs from biting them. And so it, it reminded me, you know, do you know that the Holy Spirit is often symbolized by oil in Scripture? First Samuel tells us, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David we're talking about, in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. So you see, David was anointed with oil, and that the Spirit of the Lord came on him. And for us right now, Jesus is the anointed one. You know, a lot of people think Christ is his last name. It's, it's not. In Hebrew, anointed one 
is Messiah. In Greek, anointed one is Christ. And Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the anointed one with the Holy Spirit, that's who we're talking about here. Because now Jesus is anointing us. In Acts 10, Peter's talking to a crowd of listeners. In your Bible, it'll tell you people's talking, or Peter's talking to the Gentiles. And Peter comes to them, and he's trying to convince them. He's trying to basically win the argument with them. And he says, you know, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. And so I'm really beating on this nail because I want you to know that this is important, that this anointing is something spectacular. And it's, it's, there's more too. It's like the shepherd to the sheep. We're told to use anointing of oil symbolically for healing, as in James 5. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. As believers, the Holy Spirit is called our helper. And isn't that what the oil on the head of the sheep is? Isn't that oil and helper a helper? And then fourth and finally, right, the sheep must be free from hunger so that they can lay down. Because a hungry sheep continues to wander looking for better food and invariably gets itself lost or in trouble. So when he says he lets me lie down in green pastures, that's basically breakfast in bed. That's the way I'm seeing it, right? And so the, the final thing on this is that it's worth noting here that the sheep can't do any of these things on its own. They need the good shepherd for all four of those things. But to get to the, she- the sheep to this state, the shepherd has to put in a lot of work. You know, as we said before, as I said before, Israel is a deserty, rocky place. There's not a lot of green meadows if you've been there. And the shepherd, therefore, therefore has to scout ahead in the fields, and he's looking for the good fields. He's looking for the best ones. And sometimes to make that a good field, he has to clear the field of rocks and stumps because green pastures don't typically happen in that environment. They take planning, they take care, they take a lot of hard work, and they take a lot of water. And so <clears throat> at some point we should ask ourselves, we've, we've asked ourselves who our Lord is, right? And we should ask ourselves, why do the sheep, why do we follow him? And it's because the good shepherd provides. The good shepherd always provides. In Exodus 3.8, God tells his people that he's going to lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's an example for you. The fresh green shoots that make up the pasture have more nutrients and are tastier than the old dry grass of the desert. And this tastier, more nutritious food actually makes the mom, the mother sheep's milk, flow better and is more nutritious for the babies in spring. You see, it's those little details that we skip right over a lot of the time. But his care for our needs is beyond our capacity to understand. And he gives us strength. He gives us comfort with his presence. He, he breaks up the rocks in our lives. He disperses the predators, both big and small. And he sustains us with things that are like milk and honey. And then he does something spectacular. He leads me beside quiet waters. And there's, it's important here that it's, it's quiet waters. It's not still waters. Because still waters often contain bugs or parasites. So the the sheep get diseased from still waters. But because sheep are so timid, anything noisy, like a a fast-flowing stream or rapids, scares them. 
And so they won't get anywhere near it, and they'll literally drown, um, uh, die of, of lack of water. And so in this, he's bringing us alongside quiet waters. So think like a stream and think a back eddy. So it's fresh, but it's quiet. You know, it's interesting to me that Scripture uses images of water. They use oceans. It uses bodies of water as metaphors for danger. And the sheep clearly sense that because almost all animals see any moving water the same way as dangerous. Now, aside being a, a retired policeman, one of the things I like to do is I like to, I like to do a little hunting. And so a few years ago with some friends, I did a horseback elk trip up in the, uh, the mountains of Montana. And it was amazing. And it was really good until I was riding my horse. His name was Mario, but that doesn't matter. But I was riding Mario, and we were getting along okay. And we came across a stream. And Mario locked up his legs, and he would not cross that stream. He was not having it. And so I, I really didn't know what to do. So I, I turned him around, and I got a little trot going, tried to get him to go faster, and er, he almost bucked me off. So I am not an experienced cowboy, but I, I have friends who are. So I called one of my experienced cowboy friends over and said, uh, hey, Stan, I, I can't get him to cross the stream. What do I do? And he's, Stan says, well, Mario's stubborn. So yeah, let me, let me ride him. So Stan, the experienced cowboy, gets on Mario and gets full speed going as fast as he can. And just as he gets to the stream, Mario locks up. And Stan comes almost all the way over and almost falls up. So Stan doesn't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But we got to cross the stream because the elk are where they're on the other side of it. So this will show you who the smart one in the group is. Stan devises this plan where I jump over the stream, getting wet because I couldn't make it over, and I grab the horse's reins, so we stretch him out while Stan is going to slap the horse on the behind and send it over, and I'm going to hold on and hope, hope not, hopefully not lose control of this horse. So the only thing that happened, though, is I'm pulling, Stan slaps, and the horse jerks and pulls its head, and I'm holding so tight onto those reins that he pulls me right into the stream. Whoosh. Covered in mud, or in mud, I was a mess. But the reason that the horse did that was because the horse wasn't at peace because we were not trustworthy. He didn't trust me, and he didn't trust Stan. And the good shepherd knows this. He knows we're skittish, and he assures us that we can trust him. Paul tells us in Philippians, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, in the Messiah Jesus, in the anointed one Jesus. So we just have to trust him that he's leading us to quiet waters. John 7, Jesus and his disciples are at a festival. And it's getting a little dodgy. We're getting near the end of his ministry here. And the crowd's yelling at him. And Jesus says this to the crowd, and he yells this. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. It's because Jesus leads us to the quiet waters, because he's the source of our living water. Another little tidbit here is when the sheep eat the grass early in the morning, the grass is typically covered with dew. And dew is fresh, clean water literally from heaven. So in that early morning feeding, the sheep get, they get both food and water to start their day off right. 
And that, that made me think, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that the people in my life, the people I know who are, who are most at peace with where they are, are the people who, who get up early, like the sheep, and they feed on God's nourishment. So I want to encourage you to start developing that practice if you haven't already. Because like the do for the sheep, the word of God is a daily assurance for us. It's a message that says it's going to be okay. In those quiet times, he's sustaining us. But I know we all have needs, right? I mean, for some of us, our needs are family. Some of us, our needs are finances. Some of us, our needs are work. But the good shepherd says, <coughs> excuse me, I want you to get to the place where you can trust me to provide. Our culture tells us that we need to take charge. We need to dominate. Jesus says, I've got you. In the next verse, he says, he renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. You see, people like sheep, they wander. We often walk along a path, not because it's a good path, but because somebody's gone ahead of us and made it for us. The good shepherd, however, he goes ahead of his sheep and he makes sure that the paths his sheep are on are good. You see, sometimes along a path, there's weeds deadly to the sheep. And just a few weeds and the sheep can get poisoned and die a painful death. But the good shepherd, he recognizes those weeds and he either steers his sheep away from them or pulls the weeds and make the area safe. Because as it says, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. Because we have confidence that the good shepherd's gone up before us. And I, I think that's interesting, even though I go through the darkest valley, because the, what the, the darkest valley tells me is, is it's in the shadow of the highest mountain. Are there any backpackers in the audience? I got to think Eric has done some backpacking. I got to think a few other people have done some backpacking. So has anyone summited anything like Whitney or some of the, the higher peaks in California? And if you have, when you get to the top, there's something missing. Do you know what it is? It's life. You know, here in our mountains, the trees don't even grow much above 12,000 feet. But the valley, the valley's covered in trees. And so while the, the shepherd works the sheep up towards those peaks, he stops just below them. But do you know what forces the shepherd down out of those, those areas? It's a lack of food. It's a lack of shelter. It's storms. It's snow. It's just general danger. So could it be sometimes that the, uh, the storms are good for us? Maybe what storms do is they force us back down the mountain, they force us into the valley, and they force us into God's arms, his bosom, if you will, because he's holding you tightly when you're at your most vulnerable. And it's, it's kind of like, Look at this picture here. When you, you watch National Geographics or whatever, and you see the mountain climbers, right? And their beards are all iced up, and they look, Argh! and when they get to the top, he's got one arm raised, and it's got a pickaxe in one hand, and usually the flag of their country in another, right? We can all see that image. And typically what those people are celebrating is they're celebrating their own accomplishment. Because I think when things are good, it's human nature to start to pull away and fall away from God. But it's also human nature when things are bad, when things are horrible, 
that we turn to God and we say, how could you do this to me? Or why me? Or at a minimum, help. But it's all part of the same journey. It's just interesting to me how, for most of us, God feels so much closer in the valley. And I want to point out in that verse, it says, I go through the darkest valley. It doesn't say I die there. It doesn't say I stop there. It says I go through it. So this is a journey. It's a journey of success. But it just doesn't feel like it in the moment sometimes. And maybe, maybe we have to go through that journey because the valley, the dark valley, is also the gentlest route up. Right? I mean, if, if you've got the mountain, it's hard to go straight up the mountain. Typically, we find the bowl and we go up into the bowl and then we come across to the top. But think about this. The valley, it also is full of grass. It's full of trees, which are shelter. It's full of water. That's where the streams are. Because all of us are going to have troubles in life. And to get to the top, to go through the valley, as our friend Nick Bogardis pointed out last week, so many people buy into a lie that to be a good Christian is somehow synonymous with having no troubles in life. And, you know, Nick said it last week, but it bears repeating. That's just not true. Often that kind of thinking leads people to distrust God and leave faith in frustration, thinking that God has either shunned them or maybe doesn't even exist. And I just want to point out false thinking. Dark times are going to come to all of us. But here's the thing, guys. We're not alone. We fear no danger, for he is with us. For you are with me is the next line. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd has a couple of tools at his disposal. The rod is kind of a weapon like a baseball bat. And the rod conveys authority and discipline over the sheep. But mostly, it's, it's an offensive weapon against the things that want to eat the sheep, the enemy. And the staff is different. We all know the staff. It's the, the hooked stick. It's a little more slender. And for the shepherd, it's typically a, a tool of caring and compassion. And the shepherd carries those tools because the good shepherd protects. So you can count on him to always have his rod and his staff, and you can count on him protecting you. And it's interesting because sometimes God's word is like a rod. I mean, it's, it's there for correction. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't play favorites. That's one of the reasons we go through verse by verse, so we can't pick and choose what we teach. But the rod is also def- designed to inform and protect. The staff, however, though, it's a sympathetic thing. It's more emblematic of the Spirit of God because it has compassion and empathy. So you might say the rod is truth and the staff is grace, and both of them are necessary when you're leading the sheep. And that protection and compassion, it should give comfort. And so I I found a really, what I think is a cool example of of the staff giving comfort. Um, And to, to do that, I had to pull out an ESV version because it uses the right language that I wanted to capitalize on. And Psalm 42 says, why are you cast down? O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And I want to draw your attention to cast down. Because cast down is an old shepherd's term for a sheep that's turned over on its back and can't get up. That's called a cast sheep. Uh, I was talking to Kelly Navarro the other day, and she was with a cast horse. That horse was stuck. It couldn't get up. 
And it's a terrible sight when an animal is stuck on its back, right? Its legs are flailing, it's, it's typically panicking, it's, it's bleeding or neighing or crying or whatever the animal does. <clears throat> and if the shepherd doesn't get there quickly, the sheep can die of a number of things. It can die of exposure. Animals' organs are not meant to be in that position. They will actually pinch themselves off and shut down. And the other thing the sheep can die from is predators because it's completely defenseless in that position. And so when a sheep is missing, the shepherd immediately goes to look for it because it's so vulnerable, right? Jesus alludes to this in the parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go look for the one. Remember that the Lord is our shepherd, but he's also my shepherd. Because when a, when a member of the community stops attending church or is deeply hurt, and they go off alone, they may not recognize that they're vulnerable, but they are, right? They often attract the wrong company. It makes them easy prey for the wolf or even the vulture. And so I, I want to challenge you. Is there somebody that you can think of who's, who's often alone right now? Because as, as followers of the shepherd, that makes you, that makes you shepherds. And maybe there's somebody you can reach out to and hopefully shepherd them back because God gives us a rod and his staff in his word. <clears throat> he also says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Still David, he's still a sheep. I know, it's weird. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Because all around David are enemies, right? It started with Goliath. We have King Saul, who chased him all over. We have the Philistines, who he was constantly battling with, and finally his own son, Absalom. And yet God continued to provide for David. And near the tops of the mountains, something interesting happens. Meadows develop later in the heat of summer. And those meadows, meadows they're called tablelands or alplands. Think of Spanish, though, because in, in the Spanish language, those plateaus are called mesas or tables, right? And so it's not quite the peak, it's just below the peak. They get these little, these little benches or tables. And the careful shepherd must pre-scout these mesas to be confident he is not leading his sheep to danger. The shepherd's prepared the field, he's removed the danger to the best of his abilities, but he knows the sheep's enemies still lurk high and await to pounce. You know, Jesus warned Peter, called Simon here, about something kind of like this. It says, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. When, you're, when your faith is strong, it makes you stronger, right? But it also strengthens the people around you. President Kennedy famously said, a rising tide lifts all boats. I think your faith is like that. A strong tide lifts other, or a strong faith lifts other people's faith. And Jesus prays for your faith because he knows the enemy lays in wait and he knows that together with him, we will overcome the enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be alert because the enemy prowls around like a lion wishing to devour us. It's some pretty stark imagery. And when the good shepherd goes ahead of the sheep, he also looks for signs of the lion. And signs of the lion, maybe tracks, maybe scat, maybe finished off carcasses. See, don't discount that the enemy is real. Culture, society tells you the enemy's not real. 
I can tell you personally, I've spent thousands of hours in the woods and only one time maybe had a fleeting glance at what I thought might be a lion. Yet I've come across the carcasses of many, many dead elk and deer, animals eaten by the lion. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not there. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. <clears throat> There's another curious thing sheep do. See if you can recognize a parallel with us. Did you know that sheep love to rub heads? It's like a sport for them. Next time you go to the fair, watch. They'll all be rubbing each other's heads. You see, in the Old Testament, it was declared that the sacrificial lamb should be free with, of, or should be without blemish. And the primary concern there was that the animal should be free of a disease called scab. And scab is highly contagious and spreads when sheep rub their heads. And so the medicine for scab is a combination of olive oil, sulfur, and other chemicals, and the shepherd just puts it all over the sheep. And in the Christian life, our contamination often comes when we rub heads. So I would ask you, who are you listening to right now? Who's got your ear? What company are you keeping? What are you looking at on the screen of your phone or your television? Where are you going for advice? Is it godly? You know, things like Netflix and social media, they have a lot of attractive content, but they also are full of scab. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So turn to the things that are pure and good, and you will avoid scab. In the fall, the air cools, and something called the rut takes place. If you don't know what the rut is, it's when the boys compete for the girls. And as the days get shorter, the tempers start to flare, and sheep, like their cousins the bighorn, start to fight by butting heads. All day and all night, the boys butt heads, fighting over the girls. And sometimes total exhaustion sets in and occasionally death. So the shepherd doesn't like it when his sheep butt heads. So back in the old days, they dealt with this by putting oil on the sheep's head. The modern shepherd, however, uses axle grease, puts a big glob right on the sheep's head, and any time the sheep go and try to butt something, they, whoop, they slip right off. And the sheep keep doing that and getting no, no purchase with their head butting, so they finally just give up and walk a different way. It reminds me of the times that maybe I've tried to dominate somebody or maybe held on to a grudge, or tried to control somebody else. You see, arrogance and jealousy can do great damage. And maybe that's one of the reasons that Jesus warns us, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. So once the sheep survive the rut, another thing's happened at the end of summer. Now it's fall, and the sheep are actually at their healthiest because the shepherd has led them to these good meadows. They've been fattening themselves up all summer, and you might say that their cup is overflowing. Because the, the previous verse, the last, the last part of that was, my cup is overflowing. And so the pessimist says that the cup is half empty. The optimist says it's half full. But the follower of Jesus says, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. It doesn't say only good times, only fun times, but goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Because our last point here, the shepherd, the good shepherd never leaves us. You see, Jesus, he left one thing. He left his position of privilege, and he walked through the valley as a man for us. He was sinless and perfect in every way. He came down from being at the right hand of the Father, and here on earth he was lied about, he was taunted, he was humiliated to the point of arrest and execution, and all for crimes he didn't commit. Jesus has walked through that valley. If you're there, he knows what it's like. And he did all this because next to a perfect God, any sin is a stain too ugly to merit being even in his presence. But because God is just, he sent his son to be with us, to lead and to teach us, and ultimately to be nailed to a cross, substituting himself for us. Imagine that, substituting God for man. And even as Jesus was in agonizing pain, physically and spiritually, he declared, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, again, Jesus has walked through the valley, and he did it in all faithfulness for us, for me. It's interesting, a thousand years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That him is Jesus, a thousand years before his, his birth. Because it's, in our, it's our iniquity that punished Jesus. We took our eyes off the good shepherd, but he comes for us. He keeps coming for us. He's got a staff and a rod in his hand, and he's offering us a better way. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, we're told this is about Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Right now, this very moment, the good shepherd is here. He's in the valley. He's at the top of the mountain. He's everywhere. His hand is outstretched, his rod and staff at the ready. If you don't already follow him, won't you follow him? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.